Hi, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the inaugural broadcast of ONP Research Insights, a monthly podcast of the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthodists. My name is Steve Gard, and I'm the editor-in-chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. I invite you to join me as I meet one-on-one with authors of featured articles to take a deeper look at the research being published in JPO. During the course of our discussion, we will identify and extract key takeaway points that will provide OMP clinicians and rehab specialists with actionable knowledge to implement in practice. The podcast is intended for any and all individuals involved with OMP patient care, education, and research. My guest today is Mr. Brian Caleb, Certified Prosthetist, Fellow of the Academy, an ABC certified prosthetist who first became interested in the prosthetics and orthotics field while working on his Bachelor of Science degree in biomedical engineering at Purdue University. After earning his bachelor's degree, Brian conducted research in Germany at the University of Stuttgart's Computer Simulation of Human Motion Laboratory and began working at the Fraunhofer Institute to design a high-activity bionic prosthetic foot. Brian then completed his prosthetics education at Northwestern University's Prosthetics Orthotics Center, followed by a residency at the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, now known as the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. While in residency, Brian became exposed to a broad range of prosthesis patients and cutting-edge technologies. After serving as a managing practitioner at Ability Prosthetics and Orthotics for five years, Brian took on the role as Ability's Clinical Outcomes and Research Director. Brian's research interests help improve patient evaluations through outcome measures. This work has led to many conference presentations that summarize clinical approaches and results. Brian's current research strategy involves performing grant and commercially funded comparative effectiveness research to analyze the benefit of various prosthetic components on patient mobility. Today, we're going to be discussing a recent article that Brian published in JPO entitled Hydraulic and Microprocessor Controlled Ankle Foot Prostheses for Limited Community Ambulators with Unilateral Transtibial Amputation, a pilot study. So welcome, Brian, to this podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Gard. Uh, It's certainly an honor to be invited in this inaugural podcast that you're hosting, Um, and also uh, just a a real pleasure to to have the opportunity to review this this publication um, on behalf of my uh, co-authors, Courtney Cox and Eric Shoemaker. Um, It's a a real thrill to see um, our research study available in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. We're very excited to talk to you today and, uh, and also looking forward to future podcasts uh, coming, coming in the short, short near future. Thank you, Brian. Uh, I've read your article a couple of times now and really found it intriguing. So why don't we start or jump right in to uh, talking about the article. Let's talk about the topic a little bit. Why does this topic interest you? Why did you decide to look into this? Sure. As a, as a prosthetist uh, treating patients with limb loss, uh, certainly we're confronted often with limitations to access or reimbursement uh, for different components. And uh, that usually stems from uh, health coverage policies. Um, and uh, But we recognize there's a lack of evidence uh, for, for some of the components and their benefits in, in different patient subgroups. So specifically, 
for the emerging technologies of hydraulic and microprocessor controlled ankles, uh, there's a real lack of evidence for uh, the benefits that these technologies have for patients uh, who are classified as K2 ambulators or lower uh, in the Medicare functional classification system. And uh, in the real world, uh, these patients with that K2 classification, uh, they simply don't have access to, to try out these interventions. Uh, but also what I noticed that in, in the body of evidence uh, in the ONP field, this uh, combination of microprocessor and or hydraulic controlled components uh, hasn't really been evaluated in that po population. So my interest was to uh, just to, to start off, start the ball rolling in the evidence with a small scale pilot study uh, to evaluate uh, what potential benefits might there be if we were to uh, provide access to this type of technology patients with lower limb amputation and a K2 classification. Well, I think that's a great idea, Brian. I mean, we've seen evidence that, for example, some microprocessor control knees can enable K2 level ambulators to perform at a K3 level. So it makes sense to kind of extrapolate these ideas and look at foot ankle mechanisms in the K2 level uh, population. That, that's right, Dr. Gard. And in fact, uh, this, uh, this study was certainly inspired by previous publications that you're alluding to of, of uh, protocols where microprocessor knees were provided to K2 level amputees. Um, certainly those publications came out around the time of the inception of this study design, certainly influenced this direction. So specifically, what was the purpose of your study, Brian? Yeah, so the, the, the purpose was to evaluate both patient-reported outcome measures covering a variety of health domains, as well as performance-based outcome measures uh, that we would assess uh, in the clinic setting, and a few uh, instrumentation, so step activity monitors and 2D motion analysis. Uh, we wanted to evaluate a variety of potential benefits for transtibial amputees uh, using energy storing and returning, hydraulic uh, ankle and microprocessor ankle foot mechanisms. Um, and to do this in a real world clinical setting uh, where patients uh, from their own communities could have access to enrolling in this type of study design. Sounds good, Brian. And what were your expectations? What did you think you were gonna find from the onset here? Yeah, so to be honest, we weren't certain uh, exactly what to expect. Uh, specifically because our own clinical experience in the real world uh, was limited. As, I, as I'll restate, um, patients that are classified as K2 ambulators uh, typically don't have access to carbon fiber, energy storing, and returning feet, and microprocessor ankles. Uh, recently, there have been a variety of components with hydraulic ankle uh, dampening mechanisms that uh, are combined with um, flexible keel type foot components. And, and those are accessible to patients assigned to a K2 functional level. Uh, but the other categories just uh, simply aren't, aren't available. So we didn't have the experience to know that. Uh, so we, we were certainly ready to be surprised. Additionally, we did study a variety of different uh, benefits and study endpoints ranging from self-rated mobility, balance, confidence, uh, low back pain, and socket fit comfort. Um, so we were really exploring 
uh, what possible benefits of this technology class could have uh, if it were made available to a new population of patients. And you're starting to get into the uh, kind of the methodology a little bit. So why don't we go ahead and go with the flow? Would you pr please describe the experimental protocol for your study? Yeah, to, to, to start off, this, uh, this study was a prospective a study design that was IRB approved. Uh, we aim to actually uh, recruit and enroll up to three participants. And, and in this study timeline, we were able to uh, enroll only one. Uh, which we can address later in limitations. But the study design was a randomized crossover uh, protocol with a two-week accommodation period, uh, utilizing um, all three of the study ankle foot uh, components. Additionally, we did record um, study endpoints with the patient's habitual, uh, the participant's habitual foot, uh, foot, which happened to be a flexible keel foot. Um, and the, the study ankle foot configurations were um, as alluded to, an energy storing and returning foot, uh, which was the uh, Pacifica LP component from Freedom Innovations. The hydraulic ankle uh, mechanism was the Kintera from Freedom Innovations. And the microprocessor controlled ankle was the Kinex, again, from Freedom Innovations. And I will, uh, I guess, if that's all right, Dr. Gard, I'll pause and uh, disclose the, the study uh, sponsors for, for this investigation. Uh, which was which duly from um, a pilot study uh, grant from uh, AOPA, uh, the American Orthotic and Prosthetic Association, as well as commercial funding from the manufacturer of those components, Freedom Innovation. So that's a clear disclosure there of the, the funding for, for this study um, and explains uh, some of the study configurations that we used. Yeah, I appreciate you acknowledging your funding source because I, you know, I, I think it's important for listeners to know that research like this doesn't take place in a void or it, it does. There are costs involved. And so it's it's good that funding is available and that it was provided. So thank you for uh, that acknowledgement. Yeah, certainly, and and uh, I can speak for for the AOPA grant funding mechanism for pilot studies is intended to. Uh, to seed small uh, scale uh, studies with smaller sample sizes, but that those results could then inform and motivate larger studies. And that's exactly in the vein in which we undertook this study, knowing that a small sample size, and in this publication, only one participant, um, those results aren't necessarily generalizable uh, to the entire patient population, uh, but that other investigators reading this publication could then uh, take that um, torch and carry it further in larger and, and longer study designs. But returning to our study design, so uh, to summarize it quickly, a certified prosthetist fit the ankle foot mechanisms to the participants' uh, current well-fitting uh, socket, um, aligned and adjusted to optimize the function as, as best as possible within one study visit, and then the participant use it at home uh, with a stepwatch activity monitor for two weeks, uh, returning then and immediately switching to the next configuration. The order of those systems was randomized, uh, which in larger studies is intended to reduce ordering effects, but when you only have one subject, it does little to uh, limit the effects of, of ordering uh, on study outcomes. So um, and well intended, but not as impactful as far as the randomization. At the end of the study, the, the participant 
was not able to keep um, any of the interventions um, and uh, return to their habitual uh, prosthetic foot, which was a flexible keel type foot. Well, and that's another point that I wanted to bring out, Brian, is studies like this do involve a considerable commitment oftentimes from your research subjects. Uh, it's not like they just come in, they walk around with a foot ankle mechanism for a little bit and leave with their own prosthesis. I mean, in this case, you were testing several different conditions and you fitted them for a two-week period with each different component. And then they came back and you collected your data. So I think it's, you know, it, it's important and incumbent upon us as researchers to recognize the value of the research subjects in these studies and to appreciate their contribution. Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're constantly reminded and motivated by our own patients and our practices who come and volunteer for these studies and uh, the giving of the time. Um, and the commitment that they make themselves really with a limited benefit uh, to their own situation. Um, but a lot of our participants will share with us that they really just want to help other people in the same situation uh, by contributing to the body of evidence uh, where we might explore uh, the frontiers and, and the cutting edge of, of the OMP field and evidence. So that is constantly um, reminding us of, of the high uh, importance that the, the entire society puts on um, emerging evidence uh, such as this study. Uh, but you're right about the uh, time commitments and expectations of, of patients enrolling and for investigators that really becomes a compromise as you design uh, a study protocol. I think all too often in, in our field there are studies which have very short accommodation periods where, where patients are fit with devices, um, potentially in, in gate labs where they only use it for a few minutes to an hour and then have their study endpoints uh, recorded um, and, and then leave. Uh, but the compromise becomes really in trying to recruit and enroll participants is how feasible is it for them to make that time commitment because combination periods for patients with lower limb prostheses on new components, we actually aren't certain what is the optimal timeline for someone to utilize a new device before they realize and experience those benefits. I think kind of the rule of thumb is, is around four weeks, uh, but as you add additional study configurations and then extrapolate out you know, four weeks with each, um, and then oftentimes what is the practice is to include a washout period between those study interventions, which further extends the protocol. Uh, when you add up all that time, it can be a considerable season of the year uh, for that patient to really uh, be available for study visits. And uh, so what I would recommend uh, to uh, investigators, especially as they're interacting with patients in a routine care setting is is to find that right balance and that compromise between internal controls and uh, longer accommodation periods, and then that accessibility and feasibility, uh, taking kind of empathy with our participants and how, how much of a time commitment are they able to make. And we could talk more uh, about the, the, the sample population that we were attempting to enroll and recruit as K2 uh, classified individuals um, 
they, they may not uh, actually be as accessible for these studies. And we certainly had a difficult time recruiting and enrolling what was even our uh, sample size of three uh, within a few months of our, our period of performance. Um, we ran into uh, a lot of patients that uh, were unavailable to, to, to attend routine visits. And, and for that reason, um, didn't enroll. Other, other patients may have lived in environments uh, and, and had lack of transportation to the facility to participate. And so these things we learned uh, that aren't necessarily reflected in the, the data set, uh, but are just kind of important for us to understand and coloring why uh, the, the K2 population may be underrepresented in, in, the, in the body of evidence as it is a challenge to make uh, study designs accessible to that population. And, and maybe towards the end of the, uh, of the podcast, if we have time, we can talk about future recommendations uh, for, for investigations going forward. Absolutely. You made, uh, but you touched on a, a point I want to reiterate here. I think we do need more studies involving the K2 level ambulators. Uh, there's not many of them, particularly with these new technologies, but like you, I mean, in our own laboratory, we've had difficulties rec recruiting K2 level ambulators. And I'm not sure exactly why that is, but it is a challenging population to involve in research studies. So it, let's talk about your inclusion exclusion criteria. Besides just K2 level ambulators, what specifically were your criteria for enrollment in this study? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, we were looking for unilateral transtibial amputees, uh, age 18 to 99. Uh, the component uh, limited our body weight inclusion criteria to those at or below 275 pounds. Um, we wanted individuals who uh, were using a prosthesis for at least one year and for at least eight hours out of the week, which is actually a relatively short amount of time per week to utilize a prosthesis. Um, they did need to have a well-fitting habitual prosthesis, and they needed to be able to uh, basically comply with our visit schedule and be able to tolerate the testing protocol, uh, which in this case was, was quite rigorous, as, as we'll discuss, with, especially with the performance-based outcome measures, um, may not have been easy for all patients in the K2 uh, category to actually come in and complete these performance-based outcome measures. Um, yeah, those were inclusion criteria. And again, as we recruited and screened, there were a lot of patients that we treat in our facilities that didn't meet those uh, criteria, although they did fit the K2 uh, functional level. Yeah, what strikes me, Brian, is those criteria are not overly restrictive. So um, it's, it seems like it should be easier to recruit K2 level ambulators. But like I said, this is something I, I fully appreciate the difficulties with trying to enroll K2 level uh, ambulators in a study like this. It's a, it, I think it's a unique phenomenon or a paradigm that we could talk about specifically, I think, at great lengths. And, uh, you know, again, uh, if we have more time to return at the end to maybe future recommendations, certainly in the manuscript, I make allusions to um, real-world data sets that show the proportion of patients treated or enrolled in larger studies in the various uh, functional level groups, one to four, 
and K2 is smaller in an order of magnitude or portion to com the combined group of K3 and K4, which are uh, the more traditional patients uh, that are enrolling in uh, clinical trials. Well, why don't we, uh, I'm sure listeners are eager to, to hear, what were your primary findings from this investigation? Yeah, to summarize our results in a succinct, you know, uh, easy takeaway is that the results from this individual participant were, were mixed across the different configurations, uh, which should come as no surprise given that we were capturing a variety of health domains and study endpoints. Um, but one thing that resounded really was that the hydraulic ankle system uh, did, did present uh, some benefits to um, self-rated mobility, as well as some of the performance-based outcome measures uh, related to um, walking speed and uh, some of the uh, ramp and stair ambulation uh, tasks. So as a well, kind of to round out all of, all of those results, um, the hydraulic ankle system uh, seemed to have uh, kind of the most benefits uh, when you compared all of, the, all of the systems and all the study endpoints. Um, the microprocessor ankle system also uh, did result in, uh, for example, in, uh, increased uh, patient reported mobility. Um, but one thing about that system is, is it is a bit heavier uh, than the hydraulic ankle system, uh, which was reflected in, in a few study endpoints. The, uh, Six-minute time walk test was one of our performance-based outcome measures, and that system, uh, the participant walked the slowest, um, as well as, as some of the socket uh, comfort rating, specifically the, the comprehensive lower limb amputee uh, socket survey, and the socket comfort score, which we recorded when the participant walked on slopes, um, was a little bit lower. And it could have been that the participant also was keeping in mind that they feel that pistoning from the additional weight of the microprocessor, given that this participant had, had used the suspension mechanism of a pin lock. Um, and this does resonate with some of my prior work uh, with microprocessor ankles in the K3 and K4 population. And uh, we found that a few of the participants who ended up uh, having a preference against the microprocessor ankle uh, they were also individuals who used a pin locking suspension mechanism. So kind of when we think about evaluating benefits of some of these advanced technologies like microprocessor ankles, we can't necessarily ignore the influence that their, um, their current socket suspension mechanism may have on how they, how they benefit from those systems because it might be, okay, the range of motion is greater, and, and they could benefit from greater mobility on uneven terrain, et cetera. But the penalty is that um, it does increase the pistoning they experience if they're only using a pen locking suspension mechanism. So there is of course evidence that showing kind of a hierarchy of suspension force when you go from things like anatomical suspension to pen locking to suction to vacuum as far as decreased pistoning um, in that order. So if we, you know, as a practitioner, I'm always trying to integrate um, all of the published available evidence uh, with my own experience 
as I'm recommending interventions. And so, uh, again, just speaking as an individual practitioner, it makes me lean more towards uh, combining suction suspension or greater uh, with any ankle foot mechanism that might provide additional weight compared to hydraulic or, or carbon fiber energy storing returning feed. So that's more of kind of the interpretation uh, uh, with other evidence, um, but certainly a microprocessor ankles with their uh, battery requirement and additional weight is something that practitioners and, and patients with their own preferences should consider uh, when comparing those different interventions for themselves. I think that's an excellent point, Brian, uh, because as technology continues to be refined, it's not that microprocessor-controlled ankles may not be appropriate for this population, but it could be that they need to be sleeker and lighter in weight uh, in the future, and it'd be worth revisiting you know, this topic again, perhaps. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great perspective. So were there any unanticipated surprises in your findings? You know, we learned a lot um, from this individual, uh, from this individual patient uh, that enrolled. Um, you know, a lot of surprises. Um, again, I, you know, you asked me what our expectations were and we, we weren't, we didn't have um, predefined expectations that one system would be superior to the others. You know, one thing that was surprising, I, I think, for this individual is how few steps per day that they took with all of the, the systems. So at most, uh, they were taking about a thousand steps uh, per day, uh, which is, um, is pretty low, especially when compared to kind of the, the general elderly population and, and other ratings of, of persons with amputation. Yeah, that, that was a bit surprising. Uh, the other thing I'll allude to, which, which really caused us um, uh, difficulty interpreting, was we had two, um, two measures of lower back pain. And um, one was the back pain functional scale, and the other one was the um, Oswestry lower, lower back pain uh, disability scale. And uh, what's interesting was uh, that one of the scales uh, showed a superiority with one intervention, but the other one found it to be uh, worse off. And so when you have two patient-reported outcome measures that measures a similar domain, but they have conflicting results, um, that's, of course, a challenge to interpret. Um, so that was, I wouldn't say surprising, um, but it did, it did pose challenges. Of course, if we had a larger uh, study sample, potentially, Maybe one of those uh, one of those data points could have been an outlier that that would have been treated by taking at, you know aggregate mean uh, mean data. I think what was interesting uh, to me as I reviewed the manuscript again uh, to refresh for your podcast, Dr. Gard, uh, was the fact that with the hydraulic ankle uh, on the prosthesis evaluation questionnaire mobility subscale. Um, that the, the patient, the participant actually rated their mobility on a level that was more comparable to patients assigned as a K3 or K4 um, and higher than that of patients previously reported in the literature that were assigned to a K2 group. Um, that also uh, was corroborated by their uh, plus M score, uh, which was the prosthesis limb user survey of mobility 
So both of these are, are patient reported outcome measures of mobility in the community. And uh, when using the articulating systems, uh, specifically the hydraulic ankle, um, this patient rated uh, mobility on par with someone classified it to a higher functional level. So that's interesting, right? Uh, because Dr. Gard, you did allude to uh, the body of evidence that has shown that some patients classified as K2 when given the opportunity to receive a microprocessor knee as a transfemoral amputee, they actually um, increase their functional level classification from K2 to K3 afterwards. And in this study, we didn't revisit the patient's so-called functional level classification, right? They were eligible to enroll because in our medical record system, they were listed as a K2 ambulator and they utilize a prosthesis with componentry uh, that aligned to that uh, classification. So we didn't, again, kind of revisit what would the clinician and, and referring physician uh, classify them while using these systems, but the patient reported outcome measures, especially around mobility, increased to a level that was comparable to K3. So I would love to see um, larger studies and to see uh, if, if the results um, that the prior work has shown with transfemoral amputees could be replicated with transtibial amputees when they have an experience to receive some of the componentry otherwise excluded to them. So that's really kind of the challenge for the future um, is uh, to evaluate that further. I agree. That's a great recommendation, Brian, for uh, future uh, research direction based upon this study. Now, for the benefit of the practitioners who are uh, listening to this podcast, what are the main clinical takeaways, do you think, Brian? What information can you take that's going to influence the way that you practice with your patients? I, uh, I'll take a moment to editorialize and kind of reiterate uh, that last point, because for practitioners, it's not just which components uh, were, are best for which patients, which, which is, is kind of the classical um, research question and, and one that um, a recent uh, systematic review of, of literature that was uh, completed by um, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, AHRQ, uh, a few years ago, which did come out around about the time where this uh, study was designed. Um, and that systematic review was looking for published evidence to show uh, comparisons of component effects by subgroups. Um, and so, for example, uh, they might be looking for, does a component X benefit patients who are older or younger than 65 years of age? Or does component Y benefit patients who have a transtibial or transfemoral amputation level? And, um, you know, just to, to summarize the, those findings was that evidence was limited because study designs oftentimes enrolled only one patient subgroup, A3 transfemoral amputees, for example. And so the body of evidence was silent on what those benefits would have been if those studies enrolled a transfemoral or transtibial K2 patient and, um, and explored that. So 
again, I, I mentioned that it's really a twofold situation for practitioners as they're treating patients. So at, at base value, classical kind of thought process is which components that I can include in treatment plan will benefit this individual patient. And, and that's confounded by oftentimes a decision made at the same time, which is what is the most appropriate functional level classification for this individual patient? Are they more appropriate to be identified as a potential K2 or a potential K3 or a potential, potential K4? Uh, because uh, Dr. Gard, if, if you, you, I believe that you we both understand that that decision actually limits or has effects on the types of components that practitioners can select. So I'm going to bring us around full circle to try to, to, to summarize. And again, I'm not generalizing the study results from this individual participant, but my uh, kind of perspective is there are some patients who are classified as a K2 uh, functional level who may benefit and could respond to uh, receiving hydraulic carbon fiber or microprocessor um, relevant technologies and potentially improve their functional level to K3 if it is in fact the limiting factor or the key log in their whole situation is that they don't have access to that component function, i.e. the range of motion and hydraulic dampening offered in a hydraulic ankle, which we know can improve both patient reported mobility, uh, you know, measured uh, mobility and, and, and reducing socket pressures uh, when walking on uneven terrain, right? Um, so what we as practitioners have to integrate is both that patient what potential do they have when combined with the assistive function of our prosthetic treatment plan? Could that allow them to reach a higher functional level? So that's, a, that's kind of the combination decision uh, which where our, as a practitioner, uh, we struggle with. And, and that's why I'm so excited when I read of, of kind of the, the newer studies and systematic reviews and meta-analyses that are looking at benefits of traditionally K3 level componentry in patients who are currently classified as K2 uh, because there might be a subset of that population they could experience benefits and have a richer uh, quality of life through greater mobility. Again, that's a, a whole lot to, to, to talk about when we're, talk when we're reviewing just a uh, small N equals one uh, pilot study, but that's, that kind of is the, the holistic environment perspective from a practitioner's standpoint when we're making decisions about individuals. So don't rule out that uh, maybe it is that patient is currently limited in their mobility, uh, but those, lim those limitations, the chief complaint could be that their prosthesis they currently have is restricting their mobility, balance, confidence, uh, and, and performance. And if that were changed, for example, by by providing access to them to use a hydraulic or microprocessor controlled ankle, um, could they then be upgraded or have their functional level be a future K3 or a potential K3 functional level? And, and this is, is something that's not ignored uh, or unknown 
I would say, in the literature as well as in healthcare policy. Is if there's a treatment plan that, as a, you know, a, a provider group, including the referring physician, a treating prosthetist, where we have high confidence that with this new prosthesis treatment plan intervention, this patient can improve their mobility and go from a K2 to a K3, um, that they will uh, provide uh, coverage and access uh, to that individual to receive that device. Again, trying not to generalize too much from this small, uh, uh, small study, um, but you asked me for a clinical takeaway and uh, given the, the nuance of the, the Medicare uh, functional classification level system, as well as how it's used to regulate uh, access to component technologies, it's, it's right there, I think, at that intersection. Well, I agree, Brian. I think that uh, your study, uh, you, you found some interesting results that are definitely worth building on for future investigations. So, uh, but I thank you for your insight on your research study. Thank you for participating in this podcast. And I'd like to encourage listeners, if you're intrigued by this discussion, please go look up Brian's article in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. And uh, again, my name is Steve Gar, the Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. Uh, I appreciate your interest in this po podcast, and uh, I would encourage you to consider listening to our future podcasts of ONP Research Insights, which is being uh, put on by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics.